Welcome to Soundtrack Your Life, a podcast about soundtracks, music, and movies. Each episode features a guest and focuses on a specific soundtrack and the personal stories connected to it. Now here's your host, Ryan Pack. I don't know if I know the story. All right, I'm going to remind you during the podcast for a genuine surprise. All right, Ryan, you want to kick out that intro as I speak into my mug? This is Soundtrack Your Life. I'm Ryan Pack, and this is a soundtrack podcast where I talk to someone about a soundtrack that they have a connection to. Today, Nicole Barlow and Brandis Wilson are back. We're going to talk about the 2001 Wes Anderson film, The Royal Tenenbaums. Nicole and I covered The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou in season one. So, Nicole, why are we talking about The Royal Tenenbaums today? I think there are two great reasons to talk about The Royal Tenenbaums this particular juncture in time. Number one... Royal Tenenbaums is kind of the ultimate cozy fall movie. So if you're listening, grab a pashmina, get your live, laugh, love sign out, PSL, stoke a fire, and just kind of immerse yourself in like the autumnal world of the the Royal Tenenbaums. I think it's such a great movie for fall, right? Yeah, I agree with that. I have a mug of tea, for Christ's sake. I have a mug of tea. That doesn't happen. It's not a pumpkin spice latte because now you just said PSL and that's all I can think of. Well, I mean, other people might want to grab a PSL. I don't want to alienate our PSL listenership. (laughs) I heard you say pashmina. (laughs) And I only know what a pashmina is because of Animal Crossing. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, I don't know your life. I don't know when you're listening to this. Maybe it's drive time. Maybe you've got a PSL that you just picked up from the bucks. Whatever it is, it's a really good time to listen to a little rumination on the perfect fall film, Royal Tenenbaums. It is also, drumroll, very near to the 20th anniversary of this film and this soundtrack. Way to make us feel old. It, 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 It was released 20 years ago, this December. So get yourself primed for... Any re-releases, theater releases? I'm sure that's probably in the works. Maybe they'll release like a fourth soundtrack (laughs) for this movie. Yeah, because they already re-released it in 2002. Right. I mean, if if there's a soundtrack that's probably been talked about, I I can't think of a soundtrack even in Wes Anderson world that's been talked about more extensively than this one. It's 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 pretty widely discussed and well loved and embraced and I mean for good reason it's a classic right Yeah I think this is probably the most famous of his films I don't know if it's unanimous but I would I I think most people have this in like their top 3 Wes Anderson films It's definitely in my top 3 and not not to make this like a a tangent about our favorite Wes Anderson films cuz I could go on way longer than this podcast has time for. <laughs> and I yeah, won't do that to you, listeners. We won't go. Well, this is about soundtracks. I definitely think that it's probably, especially Wes Anderson fans, like one of their favorites. But in terms of being the most ubiquitous and well-known outside of like Wes Anderson fans, maybe? I don't know. I feel like Moonrise Kingdom just like got a lot of traction and that might be the most widely recognized, even though it's one of his newer ones. 
Yeah, I mean, given that this film is 20 years old, I'm sure that there are, uh, there's a whole generation of people now that probably don't know that it exists. (laughs) Or maybe you're seeing it for the first time. But I think that's um, what's so beautiful about Wes Anderson in general, and particularly about this film, is that it is sort of timeless. and, And the way that he curates his soundtracks to sort of pick things out across genres, across time, gives it a quality that's kind of out of any kind of chronology, right? Like, it doesn't exist in a particular time frame. It just exists in this world of Wes Anderson, um, which is great. I think it's also something that people love because it's one of his Mark Mothersbaugh soundtracks, so much like Life Aquatic, which we've talked about on this podcast before. It, you know, kind of exists in that same world. I know, Ryan, you are down with the mother's bot. Yeah, and this is the first soundtrack that he did that's also produced by Bob Casale, also of Devo. Mm. So Rushmore was the first Mother's Bot scored Wes Anderson film, but there but this is the first one where Bob Casale is also credited as working on it. Yeah, and I, and I think this is, you know, also like the the film where Wes Anderson's signature style and approach to filmmaking and to soundtrack curation like really starts to gel. It's right off the heels of Rushmore where people are are starting to understand him and he's starting to gain all this notoriety. And all of this still feels like extremely new, like he's invented this genre, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think that like, Rushmore again, another one of like his marquee films that everyone wildly recognizes, but it was still not like full Wes Anderson, right? Like it wasn't as contrived and it wasn't, you know, like really him just having like no one to answer to. And I think that this film, Royal Tenenbaums, is really like the first 100% Wes Anderson film that he made. Right. It's quintessential. Like it's the blueprint for yeah exactly like every film thereafter except for maybe his like animated stuff like really kind of like comes out of this film and I would say ironically like I totally agree with you Nicole like the soundtrack is incredibly timeless and that kind of goes into it also being actually one of the quietest things about this film and I would say his soundtracks are actually the quietest things about any of his films is it's maybe it's just because everything else is so contrived right like the acting, the casting, the visuals, the set design, like everything is so meticulous and so contrived. And the soundtrack choices, I mean, the music choices are too, but they feel very natural, right? And they feel effortless and they kind of, they don't fade into the background, but they're not obnoxious and demanding attention. Whereas literally everything else is, (laughs) it's like everything else is in like 4K high definition and the music is like, beautiful in there and it supports the tone but it's not like calling attention to itself in the way that everything else is is in a Wes Anderson film which is interesting to me and ironic because it is so well curated and like widely talked about but it's one of the more quieter aspects of like his filmmaking right and so like if you have the visual of Owen Wilson's character like slapping you in the face with this visual presentation of like a 10 gallon cowboy hat right and like Ben Stiller in his tracksuits you have that against this kind of like very subdued almost relaxed collection of tracks and like you said it's kind of the first time that you see like that intention and that curation and that 
that thing where Wes Anderson deliberately chooses music to fit a scene that in a lot of cases, and, and he talks about this, you know, he crafts his story around a particular song. And I think like from the jump, you, you see this happen, right? From the jump, you get this introduction to the entire Tenenbaum clan. And the introduction is set to this orchestral version of Hey Jude, which if you know anything about Hey Jude, it's like, oh, immediately dysfunctional family. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're going to get some dysfunctional family drama. So it's this very like twee chamber orchestra. We're going to introduce everyone in that very Wes Anderson way that's now become like basically a trope. Right. And um, it's, it's set to this version of Hey Jude. Originally, it was supposed to be the Beatles. I don't write. Do you know that story? They wanted to license the original Hey Jude. They wanted to license the original Hey Jude by the Beatles. And, and you know, Wes Henderson's very firm, like it's got to end up in the movie. That's how I thought of this scene and envisioned it in my mind. Um, and this is where Nicole gets to tell like a depressing story. I feel like the story has like layers of depression. It's kind of sad. I'm sorry in advance. Boo. Pull your Pashmina really tight and just <laughs> go with me. It's kind of sad. But I, I guess at the time, George Harrison was really ill. And in order to get the Beatles at the time to you know sign off on the song they have to see the film and then they have to sign off on it and say like yeah we're all we're all cool all the surviving members of the beatles and everybody that like holds the rights to this like we're chill but apparently Wes Anderson was like well i'm not gonna go to george harrison who's like severely ill <laughs> and be like hey can you watch the royal tenenbaums from the hospital um, he didn't want to do that so that didn't happen then he turned to elliot smith um, Elliot Smith, who, of course, has Needle and Hay on this soundtrack. Elliot Smith, I guess, was also not at a great point in his life, <laughs> was kind of a mess. They did a recording session, which probably exists somewhere still, um, where he did a version of Hey Jude, and it didn't turn out great. And so Wes Anderson wasn't happy with that. And so, of course, he goes to Mark Mothersbaugh and he's like, okay, can you make this work? And so the version that's ultimately in the film is is kind of born out of necessity because he couldn't get it from anybody else. And who wants to cover that song anyways? Right? That's kind of an impossible task. Yeah, those are uh, big shoes to step into. But I think that, you know, like, I mean, if you didn't know that, I don't think that you'd be like, oh, this is like a myth, like the way that they handled it was very, like, very strong and poignant opening. It's just, you know... Now that you do know that, it's like, oh, well, like you start imagining like, well, what could it have been with the original song? I don't see it as being any better. I feel like the orchestral version kind of gives gives you that Wes Anderson kind of, um, I don't know, that, that twee. twee charm, twee. right? It's like the birth of the twee, but like an mm. accidental birth, like a breach birth <laughs> of the twee. Yeah, it's the charm and the playfulness. I mean, the it kind of works with the whole, you know, it works because it's basically a, a book. We're supposed to believe that the Royal Tenenbaums is the story that Alec Baldwin is reading to us. <laughs> Which is so random, by the way. It's so random, but it's it so works for me. Oh, he had this weird voice actor phase for a while. Like, I guess between him marrying Kim Basinger <laughs> and... Him becoming Jack Donaghy on Thirty Rock, right? He just like just started doing all these voiceover jobs, so he is the main voice in the Final Fantasy movie based off the video game. 
also random. <laughs> and then he is also the antagonist, Leonardo Leonardo, in the Clerks animated series. <laughs> Why? I mean, it's a good paycheck, right? Like, if you have a studio at home, you work from home, you, like, don't have to get up at set or whatever. The hours are more flexible. Like, if the opportunity comes knocking, why not? Yeah. Also, I'd like to invite you all to check out Ryan Pack's other podcast. It's called The Baldwin Files. And uh, he just kind of explores obscure parts of Alec Baldwin's career. Yeah. I would rather not do a deep dive into his life. <laughs> what about into his chest hair, though? <laughs> I knew. So I was a big Kevin Smith fan in high school. So, you know, I was excited about the Clerks cartoon. And then my friend Mike was a huge RPG nut. So he was excited about the Final Fantasy movie. I don't think I saw that with him. But somehow I knew that Alec Baldwin was the main voice. Sure, sure. Again, trying to explain away how you know these things. Just admit you're a huge fan. <laughs> Ryan packs over there with like <laughs> a scrapbook full of all the Alec Baldwin like clippings. <laughs> He's wearing a t-shirt with like his face on it right now. He's wearing a t-shirt with his face on it. And he has like a pennant banner that just says Baldwin. Just mm-hmm. all that cheap wine is just bringing these <laughs> memories back. Yeah, so this podcast is being recorded at night, by the way. Normally, we record these podcasts during the day, but this is SoundTechCast after dark. Um, and Ryan, I guess, in his dark office. you call it SoundTechCast? It's late. Okay, the moral of the story is that it's late. Or they're late for us. After 9 p.m., people. Oh my god, again, don't out like people as old. Stop with this 9 p.m. business or like speak about yourself and don't include me in that. Okay, but the point of this story, not to out anyone for being old or feeble or unable to stay up past nine. <laughs> but Ryan <laughs> Ryan tried to get this set up for us tonight and in the process apparently kicked a duffel bag that had some old wine in it. And so the the atmosphere for this Royal Ten and Bombs uh, podcast for Ryan is just cheap, broken wine. The whip yeah, it should wine. be like Turkish delight or something kind of pretentious <laughs> like that. Turkish delight. He's getting secondhand drunk right now. It's cool. Like for Wes Anderson, it should be like, oh, I have this box of perfectly symmetrical chocolates with that toothpaste crap in the middle. <laughs> Okay, Ryan is officially high on wine fumes, so we're just going to see, we're going to see how this goes. That's, be prepared. Did anyone think as they were watching this film that the Royal Tenenbaums is like the OG but more highbrow Arrested Development, or is that just me because I'm such an Arrested Development fan? (laughs) I mean, they came out, you know, pretty, pretty close together, right? I don't think so wasn't the first season arrested development like 2004 ish 2003 Ooh, almost close yeah so this was before that right math no yeah so it was um basically two years before okay but instead of ron howard it's alec baldwin i, I think it was just yeah right <laughs> we don't know anything about ron howard it's the whole six seasons in a movie actually started with the movie. I think this is just a, a really prime time for dysfunctional families, maybe. When is it not? They're perennial. 
evergreen. <laughs> Who doesn't love a dysfunctional family? I mean, they're definitely um, similar. They're parallels, we'll say. Mm-hmm. I was a little bit sad that the Dalmatian mice didn't have like their own little like tune, not gonna lie. <laughs> They're like the full highlight of the film to me. I mean, it's not a Disney film, Brandis. They're not gonna make a dress for you. <laughs> but it's Wes Anderson, so close. Well, they're not going to sing a song, but, you know, Mark Mothersbaugh could have given them a theme. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to save this conversation for our uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox episode. (laughs) So I want to talk about the the other scenes from this movie that are iconic, that are so tied to songs that for some people that are ever certain age or they're really into this movie, um, like I have been over the years, that they're just completely linked. I think for me, what this podcast is really about is it's, you know, the the visuals that play in your mind and the way that when you hear these songs, even later, they hearken back to this piece of cinema. And I think one of the big ones in this film is that scene where you see Gwyneth Paltrow's character get off the green line to These Days by Nico. Yep. I mean... They're like a more iconic intro to a character than that. I feel like that is just such a perfect scene. I agree with the that. Silence is we agree. <laughs> We're all imagining it in our mind. <laughs> the jury finds in your favor. <laughs> Again, like it's this perfect kind of like, you know, you see her in like full it girl form and you know, Nico starts playing her being this kind of ultimate it girl herself speaks to New York. It speaks to the time that you're in the season that you're in. Um, It gives this kind of like sense of longing between her character and Richie's character. And it's just like a perfect scene. And I mean, all Wes Anderson movies are beautiful. And I think the music really does so much to support that in, in this film in particular. There's just like a uh, chef's kiss to everything. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's definitely one of the big scenes. I definitely feel that way with Needle in the Hay. Mm-hmm. It is the only way you can make Elliot Smith even sadder. To set <laughs> right. it to a suicide attempt. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And I mean, and this came out, you know, I think before Elliot Smith himself um, passed away, if I'm remembering it correctly. <laughs> yeah. Although the timeline is is hazy. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that scene is, I think, for a lot of people, kind of imprinted in your brain. <laughs> like, it is so interwoven with that song that I can't hear it without thinking of this movie. And that's rare. Yeah, like, I've heard Needle in the Hay, like, a million times. I have that self-titled album. I mean, that song is super sad by itself, but when you see it in the movie, it makes sense. Like, it's not too on the nose, even though it should be too on the nose. Right, but somehow it's just left of center enough where it, you know, it doesn't quite, it doesn't quite feel, it feels unexpected, I guess, is is what you want to say, which is, you know, how a moment that that's, that's so dramatic 
should feel. And I always feel weird talking about <laughs> like scenes like this in the films that we discuss because I, like, am I, is it a spoiler? This film is 20 years old. Like we know what happens, right? I think anyone who's <laughs> listening to these episodes is aware that we're going to discuss plot points. So unless we were like talking about Fight Club, I think we're good. Fight Club. Please watch the movies before you listen to this <laughs> podcast. Please don't give us a bad review based on the fact that you haven't done the homework. Right? It's not our fault. Yeah, especially if the movie's like 10 years or more, or 10 yeah. years older or more. We're not reviewing films currently in theaters or streaming for first time, so. Is is that the statute of limitations for you, Ryan? It has to be 10 years? Honestly, I think it's like five. Five years? Okay, fair. Personally, with like streaming and binging, I feel like there is no statute of limitations because everyone started watching things at different times that it would be like we could never discuss anything, right? So There's no statute like... of limitations because no one's forcing you to listen to this podcast. <laughs> well, sure. I mean in life. I don't mean in this podcast. I mean in life. I feel like if someone is about to talk about something and you haven't seen it, it's on you to say no 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 spoilers it's not on the person to not say spoilers anymore i think that that has shifted with the exception of fight club just because that's like the joke do you hear that folks it's on you straight from Brandon's mouth. why are you listening to the royal tenenbaums episode if you don't want to hear any spoilers about the movie (laughs) (laughs) as previously promised we're going to shame all of our listeners I'm having a bad day. (laughs) I'm just sitting in the midst of broken glass, broken dreams. The wine is now like, he's now on like the downer side of the wine high. Definitely. Just the smell of like skunk wine lingering in the air. Past nine. (laughs) That's how I imagine the rooftop smells like with like the 10 year old cigarettes and the hawk dropping. Every time that I see like the scene, I'm just I'm really smelling that scene. It's very visceral for me. The the hawk's name in this movie is it or the falcon is Mordecai. And I don't know why, but I've always wanted to name something Mordecai until in real life I met someone named Mordecai. <laughs> Brandis knows what I'm talking about without saying too much, but it, it, then it ruined it for me. Does it ever happen? I don't know if that ever happens to anyone else. Where you've already like, said too much. Yeah, it's like put up on a pedestal. Like, wouldn't that be a cool name to like, I don't know, like bestow on a gerbil or whatever <laughs> random pet comes into your possession. And then you meet somebody with this random ass name and it just blows the whole plan out of the water. I've always wanted a kangaroo and I would name him Ferdinand and he would be my personal assistant. That's until you meet a Ferdinand. Right. <laughs> I haven't met one in person yet, so gonna ruin it for you for it it's like the new version of like don't meet your heroes it's like don't meet your wannabe namesakes i don't (laughs) yeah kind of (laughs) so back to the tenenbaums so back to the tenenbaums you guys know we do this this is what we do tangents never maybe because i'm not a huge paul simon fan (laughs) I feel like me and Julio down by the schoolyard just sounds like a Wes Anderson movie song Mm. at this point in my life. Like when I hear it, I'm just like, oh yeah, that's like what would be in a Wes Anderson trailer. Mm. Like I feel like he owns that song and not Paul Simon. (laughs) (laughs) 
fair. It is fair. I mean, both like sonically and lyrically, it's very, it's um, unlike Needle in the Hay being kind of like a fresh and unexpected choice, probably at that time in particular, that song is very like, okay, now you're just hitting me over the head with twee. I feel just like smothered in twee. It's just, it's just too, you know, mama pajama, roll out a bit. Da, 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 da. It's just too much. It's too much. And it's that whole montage. It's that whole montage of them like going around town and like, yeah. <laughs> I get it. I get what you're saying. It's a skip. It's a like, skip. I feel, no, I'm not saying it's a skip, but I just feel like, I was like, oh, it's not in Moonrise Kingdom. I'm pretty sure it was also in Moonrise Kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> Right? Has anyone done like a spreadsheet, like cross uh, comparing all of the films and the soundtracks and see if there's any repeats? <laughs> I'm that always sunny meme with these films, like in my basement with the string, like trying to figure out what's going on. <laughs> yeah, I get, I get what you're saying though, Ryan. It also feels like they're, because things are attached to scenes, the energy of the scene and what they're trying to portray, like obviously not everything is going to fit isn't going to have the same like sonic quality, but there is kind of an overall, like Brandon said, like very subdued, strummy, you know, guitar driven acoustic vibe to this, like a very warm crackling fall leaves on the ground kind of vibe. You know, it's got Nick Drake, for example. It's got, you know, some vintage stones songs from um, Between the Buttons, which appear like back-to-back in the movie, but are not back-to-back on Between the Buttons, just FYI, for those keeping score at home. (laughs) But we also have some Clash and Ramones, which is very, very punk for Wes Anderson. Very punk for Wes Anderson, but also like very, yeah, like Ramones in particular, very like scene setting, I guess. It's like, oh, hey... We're in New York now. That was so bad. I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, like, I mean, for our, you know, like podcast bingo, we hadn't checked the uh, Nicole does an offensive um, accent accent in a while. So I'm walking here. <laughs> we were due for that one. <laughs> so bad, guys. Speaking of that, can we talk about the taxi? What the hell is with that taxi cab? I don't know, Brandis. What the hell's with the taxi cab? You tell I, me like, there's only one taxi cab in this neighborhood. <laughs> I'm like, I don't, I don't understand. I'm with you with the Dalmatian mice, and then we end on the Dalmatian himself, and everything like is falling into place. But that taxi cab is just stealing so much of the scene every <laughs> single time. My favorite thing about Brandis's movie opinions when we do this is that she gets hung up. On- <laughs> <laughs> I have never once really thought about. Oh, here's another. <laughs> so when I was in film school, um, I watched this movie with the audio commentary track on. And Wes Anderson is very meticulous. And uh, to the point where like, it's actually kind of insufferable to listen to the <laughs> audio commentary. But there, there is a conversation with Gene Hackman and Angelica Houston in the park. And at the beginning of the scene, you see like a guy run by them. And as they're walking back to the apartment, like later that day, you see the guy run again. And Wes Anderson was like, that was intentional. The guy was running the entire time. 
<laughs> sure. Okay. Like, it's the same guy. Like, I wanted to make sure, like, it's the same guy. There's a little bit of ego there. I think that was an editing mistake. <laughs> well, I, I, like you said, I don't listen to the audio commentary because as much as I love the dude, like, he's not somebody that you want to listen talk, you know, the, like, I'm one to say this right now as I'm, like, rambling about nothing. <laughs> you don't want to listen to Wes Anderson talk. Listen to me talk. <laughs> so much better. I don't know if you guys have ever cracked open his actual, like, screenplays, but they are full-on novels. It's, like, the textbook on what not to do if you're, like, a first-time screenwriter is write literally pages of stage directions for each scene. It's insane. So I can only imagine the commentary would be just as thorough. Yeah, well, like, the between the buttons thing, like, he's very specific about, like, you know, I don't want you to think that, you know, I had my playlist on shuffle or anything. Like, I understand these songs don't actually appear back to back on the album, but I wanted it that way because that's, you know, the, it went better with the emotion that I was trying to carry. And we're like, okay, we get it, Wes Anderson. Like, we get it. <laughs> <laughs> You're an artist. We know. With a little bit of OCD. Oh, just a little. Just a tad. Just a little. A twinge. A twinge. <laughs> a twinge of twee. Of OCD. So this is clearly a fall movie. Yes. But he uses Christmas Time Is Here, which is very much a Christmas song. I had questions about that. I did notice. I was like, isn't this a Christmas song? <laughs> Is that the Charlie Brown Christmas song? Oh, oh, it is. Um, It is. It's actually a joke in my extended family that this is, I find this song to be like horrendously depressing. (laughs) Like there's something about it that just brings me down. I know some people like it lifts them up and they think it's like super attached to this idealized version of Christmas. I think it's a freaking bummer. It's a bummer. No, it's a bummer. It's Charlie Brown's Christmas tree that can't even support one ornament. Well, right. I mean, it's, 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 it's a depressing. What I, the whole thing is depressing. Not that we're talking about Charlie Brown, but but yeah, it's melancholy, right? This song mm-hmm. is melancholy. That's the perfect word. But again, it's like it's not that time of year in the film. So I still have questions about that one. That was the one song that I had questions about. Uh, well, I bet Wes Anderson would have uh, an essay like a whatever 20 feet high on your desk by tomorrow to explain it to you. Well, Ryan, you listened to the commentary. So did he have commentary on that that you remember? I don't, but this is a, I'm going to use this time to do a Wes Anderson critique. Wes Anderson stands, uh, hold on to your water bottles, uh, plug your ears. Yeah. Hold on to your cheap wine. So it doesn't break. Ryan's got an opinion. And this was brought up to uh, this was brought up by my brother-in-law, so he watched Isle of Dogs, which is at least at the time of this recording the most recent Wes Anderson film. And that film uses a piece of score from a Kurosawa film, from Drunken Angel, which is one of his you know classics. And he was like, I don't like how he used it. He just kind of used it in like this transition scene, like in Broken Angel or Drunken Angel, sorry, Drunken Angel. In Drunken Angel, it's a really stirring piece of music. Like when it's used, it's like a really pivotal scene. Kind of seems like Wes Anderson just kind of threw it in there because he could. (laughs) 
And I kind of feel that way about how he uses Christmas time is here. Like he uses it in a melancholy sort of way because it's, I believe, a Margot and Royal scene. But it has nothing to do with Christmas or them talking about, you know, how he let her down during a previous Christmas when she was a child. It has nothing to do with Christmas, but he uses Christmas as, but he uses Christmas time as here just kind of because he can. I feel like that's a bit different though. Like using a song not to its full potential, like to your brother-in-law's point to me feels very differently than using a song that feels out of place and so incredibly random. Again, I don't think that, Soundtracks have to be like say on the nose. I want something more unexpected, but Christmas is just so specific. Like Christmas can only refer to Christmas and that's it. And this is like not Christmas. So it just makes no sense to me. I can only postulate, I'm not Wes Anderson, but maybe there is something close to what Ryan said, where it's supposed to harken back to childhood and that, you know, sort of disappointment idea or, you know, th- the things that have fractured over the years. And I think it's just such a damn sad composition. Like, it's just such a sad thing. Um, you know, who knows? Who knows the history behind it? If anybody knows the history of why that was selected, tell us. Educate it's us. It's to set you up for a needle in the hay later. <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole other episode, like a capsule unto itself, too. Like, um, other than Needle in the Hay, you know, what's the most depressing song plus scene in a Wes Anderson movie? Because there are a few. I know that Wes Anderson gets, for some people, there's some flack, right, that his movies can be kind of cold or emotionless. But for me, there's some scenes in his movies that are just hitters. Like, they will reduce me they are sad I think it's that like whether or not you appreciate understatement right Mm -hmm. because they are understated even like the super sad scenes and everything is so contrived so if that resonates with you then it does if it doesn't you're just you're never going to feel that scene right like I feel like that's why a lot of why Grand Budapest sorry Grand Budapest Hotel is so polarizing is because the subject matter is especially sensitive for so many people and for all those people who are like understatement and that treatment doesn't like hit, then they felt like it was a bit disrespectful. So I can certainly see that, like that sort of treatment, like not hitting with like a lot of people, but if you're a Wes Anderson fan, then obviously like it hits you and there are a ton, I don't remember the music specifically for Grand Budapest, but I can imagine there are like so many like super like tragic scenes in that film. Right. That I'm sort of like really stand out. Right. It's it's understatement. You know, I think that's that's really the the key to all of it is that it's it's not it's not maudlin, it's not it's not saccharine, it's these very understated uh, moments of reveal from people that you don't expect that from or that maybe have been uh, up to that point in the film, like really withholding, right? Like there's this scene with Ben Stiller, it's Ben Stiller's character, Chaz, where he just tells Royal, like, I've had a bad day, dad. And I don't know, for some reason, every time like that scene really gets me, <laughs> mm-hmm. that like moment of understanding between them is is great. That Van yeah, Morrison like- song they play over the funeral at the end also 
that's a whole contender, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. The like no one speaking definitely doesn't like sit well with me either. So like the music and just like the scene and the fact that like no one's talking, I think makes that such like an emotional scene. Yeah, it really like it runs the gamut and the soundtrack kind of runs the gamut with it in terms of kind of this emotional roller coaster that you go on with this movie. There's also like a very, you know, kind of like romantic bent to this film, right? Like those Rolling Stones songs that get used in this film are basically like in the film, they they play off of um, Margot Tenenbaum's like little record player and that scene that they have together in the tent where you get that, you get that back to back of those two songs of um, She Smiled Sweetly and Ruby Tuesday like two songs that everybody kind of knows and, you know, they could be like, they could be interpreted as being like, oh, it's two on the nose, right? <laughs> but they work, they work. They're just like warm and sincere. And there's also that quality to this movie that's like really nice. It's just, you know, a movie that like you want to drink a mug of tea to, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I do feel like the soundtrack kind of genre hops a little bit more than Mm -hmm. I'm used to with Wes Anderson. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have a little bit of punk, you have Elliot Smith who made music in modern times. Mm -hmm. Uh, Elliot's music has a lot of classic rock influence, um, especially kind of Beatles production on his newer music. You know, it fits, but it's also, it kind of sticks out like a sore thumb because, you know, you kind of have this timeless quality with the visuals and he usually pairs that with classic rock but here you have a song that was like recorded in like 1995 yeah i mean it's it's it definitely like it it takes those risks and it genre hops like that without losing the essence of the film and without losing kind of the immersive quality that brings you into that world which i think speaks to how well curated it is right it's just a very smart collection of songs that are attached to these very specific moments but none of them take you out of this imaginary place they just draw you like further in um even the ones that you know you you kind of like maybe see coming or expect like paul simon you know paul simon is still like if you think of paul simon and simon and garfunkel and you want to set the scene for fall is there anything more fall than like Simon and Garfunkel and Paul Simon. <laughs> I don't know for some reason those are also really linked in my brain. Like when I picture sweaters, I just see like Paul Simon in a turtleneck. In a turtleneck and like a knit. <laughs> as long as it's not from Graceland. <laughs> no, no. I just, I just, you know, it's like it's very Paul Simon and some like dappled light under a tree. Is that makes sense to me? My brain gets that. Yeah, I think, you know, with like Nico and Velvet Underground, I definitely get more of like a fall sort of vibe from them. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, no coincidence that that Nico appears twice on the soundtrack. You know, you get you get Ferris of the Seasons and you also get These Days, both from Chelsea Girl, both again very like scene setting little tokens that tell you it's fall in New York, but also kind of give you a mood they kind of like you know set you into this mood and and that mood kind of carries through 
and you get Stephanie says by the Velvet Underground too. So yeah, a lot of a lot of uh, Velvet Underground and Nico that pop up in this. It's kind of more dominant than anything else, right? Yeah, not maybe not to the point of you know the Bowie connection from Life Aquatic, but it's definitely I guess like a theme of the movie. Right. It's kind of like that nice little little undercurrent, right, where it pops up just often enough to remind you of these cues that you're supposed to remember about like where you are. And yeah, I almost kind of feel like it's it's thematic and that it connects so much to to Marco, too. I feel like all of her you know, moments and are kind of scored that way. So the two Rolling Stones songs that are in the movie are not on the soundtrack. And according to Wikipedia, it's because the Rolling Stones don't license their songs to a lot of movies. Uh, I thought that was interesting because you would assume that if anyone would be able to get the Rolling Stones, it would be Wes Anderson. (laughs) I know uh, as of recent times, I think on the Scott Pilgrim versus the World soundtrack, I think Edgar Wright was able to get a Rolling Stones track. Wow. Yeah, I mean, they can't be that protective if it, you know, made it into the movie. It, yeah, it's just weird that they wouldn't allow it to, you know, live out on the world as part of the the proper, part of a proper soundtrack. That is interesting. I, I'm always like, I'm always kind of fascinated by the process of this. And I, you know, do part of it for a living. But this idea of like reaching out to artists and how much they actually know about what they're licensing. And I think it really depends on the individual artists, because I think some of them really don't care. <laughs> and some of them are like so enormously like protective and gatekeeping like everything that they've ever done in history that it's insane. <laughs> There's a story that I read where Jackson Brown, the, the singer Jackson Brown, uh, wrote both of these Nico songs and does not remember licensing these at all. <laughs> Like, he straight up doesn't remember. Like, he heard it one day, and he's like, oh, yeah, I heard it come on in the movie. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's my song. <laughs> what, really? Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on how much they're entrusting, like, their managers and stuff, too, right? Like, how heavily involved are they? How much are you directly speaking to the artists versus, like, their people? Right, because I think some artists completely forfeit all that responsibility and just collect the checks, and others are, are really protective. I would love to know how it works for Bob Dylan, um, because I want to imagine Bob Dylan having to watch this movie for some reason. <laughs> I don't understand what's happening. It's really good. Why is there no emotion? And why does that work with my songs? Here's Wigwam. It's not off one of my better albums, so it's fine. All right. So there's a segue. You have a story yes. to share with us. Speaking of Wigwam. Well, it's a story that involves all three people on this podcast does it how can neither of us for the record dear listeners neither ryan nor i remember this story so i have many questions about oh, how it oh, you up. will in a moment i promise you will so <laughs> there is a song called wigwam on this track song a song by bob dylan called wigwam this is one of those songs that i don't attach to the royal tenenbaums because unfortunately <laughs> My mind hasn't linked to a completely different moment in my personal history. <laughs> so picture it, picture it. It's it's pre-COVID times. Ryan Pack used to host these, you know, every once in a while events that, you know, took place at theaters 
live stage, you know, people telling like their stories, music performances, basically kind of like a really cool open mic night where you could do whatever you want to do. And we would all go see it. So Ryan is hosting one of these open mic nights, right? He is kind of informally the MC. We watch some bands perform, some singers, some great storytelling. Um, you know, it's a nice little night that we're having. Brandis is there with me in the audience, even if she doesn't remember it, but she's there. Okay, no, I actually do remember this story. I just didn't remember the song because I think my ears were just ringing the whole time. <laughs> yeah. So, 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 so she's there. Okay. We're sitting seated next to each other. We see all the nice acoustic bands. Every, the night is going very well and as expected. And then, you know, the things that we have signed up for seeing with our eyes have <laughs> transpired. And then we see some cardboard boxes in the shape of kind of, you know, like an air duct get brought to the stage. And... We hear from the inside of these taped together, like collection of like, you just picture a bunch of Amazon boxes, right? We hear a bunch of pounding and somebody trying to get out. And from the boxes pops a person that we all mutually know, wearing nothing but his underpants, covered in flour, dust, chalk, chalk some kind of white... <laughs> chalky substance he bursts free from the box he grabs a broom from the side of the stage and he starts sweeping away all of this debris that has at this point completely exploded to every corner of the theater stage and he's doing it all practically naked to the tune of bob dylan's wigwam <laughs> so it's just da, 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 naked man sweeping <laughs> like sandwiched in between like the very lovely acoustic guitar person and you know the woman telling this very heartfelt story about her childhood this this is what we see <laughs> but again per my earlier comment that was not recorded if it's something that visceral <laughs> It affects you that much that it sticks with you for 15 years or so and you like cannot get it out of your brain, then I think it was pretty effective, right? Art is supposed to make you feel things even if they're uncomfortable. I'm absolutely not knocking it. What I'm telling <laughs> you is that it is, an, it is in an, an indelible place imprinted in the back of my brain. And anytime that I hear Wigwam, if it's in the context of this movie or anywhere out in, in nature, <laughs> this is what I think of. So. Yeah, I mean, good job, good show. I'm, I'm never going to fully be able to deconstruct what the <laughs> F that meant, but it happened. So, yeah, I hope the next time people hear Wigwam, they think of somebody practically naked sweeping a stage. That's it my was hope. the most unexpected and unique piece of performance art I've ever seen. I, I don't I, know from him. I thought I was kind of expected. <laughs> well, I mean, unique and unexpected is expected from him, yes, but... That particular execution of it was memorable. Yeah. I remember it being a Dylan song. I didn't remember it being Wigwam specifically. Oh, I didn't remember the music at all because I was completely just like speechless from first just the pounding. And I'm like, what's happening? What's going on? It's like all lights out and you just hear this like huge deep pounding and you're like, what the hell? And then he like bursts out of the box and I'm like, 
holy shit, is that so-and-so? And then he's like covered in this like white chalk. And I'm like, what the fuck is happening? And then he's like practically naked. And I'm like, oh my God, this is too uncomfortable because I know him. And then he starts sweeping all this shit up. And I'm like, huh. So yeah, all that's going in my mind. Like there's not enough room to process what song is playing behind that. I don't know. For some reason, that just the song choice like really heightened the absurdity for me. And so it stuck. And it's still like, it's still something that I can't, I can't shake it. Same, same. I do want to extremely clarify that when I said I don't remember it, I literally didn't remember your wigwam story. I very much remember that performance art. Okay, good. I, I think I think some mysteries are just meant to, you know, remain mysteries. So why Wes Anderson used Christmas time is here in this film. Um, why any of that happened at Ryan's event, we're just never gonna know. We're gonna have to look at that. I asked him to do something and that's what he thought of. <laughs> that's why it happened. That's why it happened. He was invited. I asked him to do something and that's what he thought of. Did he ever give you a heads up? I think he asked me like parameters of like what was acceptable. <laughs> and I was like, well, you know, obviously like don't light anything on fire. <laughs> but again, it's like not that playing music is like, you know, we don't want it. Like we love music and like readings. We love readings. We love these things. But these are very set like parameters like things that people knew that they could do. It's safe, right? He went completely outside of the box. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Literally outside, like tore that box apart and did something completely unexpected. I'm pretty sure that was like wood, not cardboard. Yeah, I don't think it was cardboard. I think it was, I think he like beat through like thin plywood. I, yeah, I see that's the part I don't remember. I remember the pounding being like very intense and I was like, oh my God, like, whoever is going to like, I maybe knew it was him. But I was like, they're going to hurt themselves. I definitely think it was more intense than cardboard. Uh, just imagine being backstage and being like, what, what, what's going on? <laughs> Wait, you didn't get to see it? No, I saw it. But okay, you know, like, you saw from, like the between acts, I'm like, you know, checking like, oh, is the next person ready? And then I'm like, oh. Beep. Sorry. Uh, Sorry. Edit. No Edit. No names. You know, so I'm like, this guy. Him and his box at him and his buddies were pounding together before the show started. I guess it's time for that. Now it's all coming back to me that you're completely right. They they looked like they were a bunch of cardboard boxes, but in reality it was like he was breaking through wood and then ultimately all the debris that like splashed onto the stage was like plaster. It mm-hmm. looked like plaster. Okay, and anyway. all the like whatever chalk was like on him too. Anyway, I'm sorry for that really long segue. I just figured you guys should know that um, this is the kind of stuff that Ryan drags us into is <laughs> performances where people. These are the things that we have the privilege to That's experience true. because we know Ryan. That's my life would be less if that hadn't happened to me. Oh, yeah. It's like, you know, definitely in like my top 15 of that time frame. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I thought it was, was a good way to sarcasm. go out. That was not sarcasm. <laughs> as far as doing those shows, that was a good way to go out. <laughs> now Ryan only does podcasts safely from his wine-soaked desk. All right. So I have a question about the soundtrack. Yes. So notwithstanding all of the uh, the score, the Mark Mothersburg score, so 
Mark Mother's Boss Corps. I can't talk tonight. This is what happens when you when it's close to ten. Grandma needs to go to bed. Dream about yeah, wigwam. Grandma. <laughs> Don't dream about wigwam. <laughs> anyway, what I was gonna ask, even though my mouth won't let me talk correctly. If you have to pick one song to kick off this soundtrack island, what do you kick off? What goes? I think we know Ryan's answer. Did he leave us? I was waiting for him to give his. My answer is the Christmas song, obviously. Is Ryan there? I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I may just want to kick off Wigwam now. You've ruined it for him as well now. I am so sorry. That's usually my job. I'm the one who ruins things for people. I'm going to kick off Hey Jude. Ow. Really? Well, this version of Hey Jude. Youch. Well, I'm going to kick off me and Julio down by the schoolyard. Tell us why. For the aforementioned reasons that it just feels a little bit, you know, too obvious. And it's just, you know... As much as I love Paul Simon and, and Paul Simon associated things, it's it's a little little obvious. It's just it's too it's too well known choice. Ryan, why'd you pick Hey Jude? I think I've heard that song like five bill I've seen McCartney play it live, so I feel like I'll just stick with the original version. Seeing uh, songs live. <laughs> like that little brag that you stuck into that conversation. Right? It's like, oh, I've seen this in concert, so I don't need to hear it in a film. Yes, <laughs> Paul invited me to see him live, so, you know. I can only envision that song by the original performer. He serenaded me personally. <laughs> I, well, final thoughts on what you guys think makes this soundtrack one of the good ones? I think we so we covered off on this, but just to reinforce, it is very subdued, but in like a good way. It just fits so naturally into all of the spaces and really like enhances the tone without calling attention to itself. And I feel like almost all of the cases, I know you guys feel a bit differently about some of the songs, but I think it's just such like a seamless, like warm, cozy, very natural, effortless um, curation. It is cozy. I think that's the word that has escaped me this entire podcast. This thing is just so damn cozy. You said cozy at the beginning of the yes, podcast. I, I, I said it in a different way, but it was it's just it's, it's cozy. It's cozy. For sure. I think in 2001, a soundtrack like this was pretty unique. You know, to have bands like The Velvet Underground and Nico, like I feel like it happens a lot more now. I think once Garden State became a thing. Oh, I don't know if we can speak of Garden State on this podcast. Has anyone had Garden State on this podcast? No, we can we can do it. We'll, we can just... I, I have a lot of... We can muscle through I, it. I have a lot of opinions <laughs> on that movie. All right. Maybe we'll hate watch Garden State. You know, I... I'll, I'll just say this. I don't hate Garden State as, I'm, as much as I hate people who love Garden State. <laughs> That is completely fair. Because you know what? If you're going to choose, like, because I almost feel like these these films are somewhat related in terms of, like, time period and tone and the thing that they're going for, right? But there's clearly, like, 
the premium version and like the version that you ordered on Amazon. And I think we know <laughs> which is which. Garden State is another one of those films that I've actually never seen. Wow. It also has Nick Drake and Paul Simon on it. Oh, it's such a good point. See, because same vibes. It's very like, we're just going to go for that like acoustic fall vibe that I think rapidly turned into, you know, bad playlists for bad coffee houses in the <laughs> 2000s. <laughs> so there's, I think what makes this great for me is that it's that exact distinction. It's the distinction between you know, something that is um, thrown together for the sake of a mood, but you don't really feel like it's personal and considered versus something like the Royal Tenenbaums where everything is done and chosen with such great intention and, you know, put to these just very memorable scenes and, and visuals in a way that I think really epitomizes, you know, like why this podcast exists, which is that it makes an impression on you and it becomes kind of part of your life and your history and the way that you see the world. So this, I really like this movie. I don't know if you can't. This isn't obvious by all the times I've said cozy. <laughs> I wasn't sure. I was, I was trying to determine if you liked it or not, but it wasn't crystal yeah. clear. Were we unclear on that? I just wanted to make sure everybody knew that I like this movie. Maybe you should say it one more time just I to really be like absolutely clear. I like it. It's really great. <laughs> so great. Thank you, Brandis and Nicole, for coming back and talking about another soundtrack with me. Absolutely. Always happy to drop in. Thanks for allowing us to keep doing this for some reason. I promise not to ever come on one of your stages and um, sweep naked. <laughs> Well, I appreciate that. Uh, so you can follow us on Instagram at SoundtrackCast, on Twitter at Soundtrack underscore your email at SoundtrackCast at gmail.com. Leave us a review on whatever platform you're using. Unless you're Thundermug. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to hear from you anymore. I actually want to hear more. Agreed. Yeah. If you are Thundermug, please leave a very detailed review and we will um, create a very special podcast where we review your review. <laughs> It'll be a bonus episode. <laughs> Subscribers only. <laughs> I really want to do that now. Only mugs. So uh, stick around. We've got one more episode with Brandis and Nicole this year. We'll be doing our Christmas episode, and hopefully, uh, hopefully you'll uh, join us for that. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Soundtrack Your Life. Make sure to visit our website, SoundtrackYourLife.net, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too.